Welcome to Wage Cucking with JMO. All right, guys. Uh, welcome to another episode of Wage Cucking with JMO. Today we have Maxon, who is the founder of BTC2, and he's working on a new project called PV01. Max, how are you doing today? Very well. Thank you very much for having me. Before I get started on talking about what you're working on now, uh, you want to give the listeners a little bit of your history, like um, how you got into crypto and I guess a, a bit of what you worked on before? Yeah, I got into crypto in um, early 2013, I think. I bought a bunch of Bitcoin at 7 euros. And then they went up 7 or 10, 7 or 10 euros. Then they went up 7x. And I thought, what the the hell is this? I'm out. I sold everything. Which I think is what most people would have done if they were early. I think it takes a certain kind of personality to hold all the way from $10 or or less to to 20,000. And so that was my essentially one and only investment in Bitcoin. Because after that, when I created B2C2, I always thought that uh, the company is going to do well if Bitcoin does well. Not that we own any Bitcoin really, but just, you know, it's better for, for trading firms when the prices go up, right? Because of increased volumes. And so that early 20, 2013 was when I got into the market was a little bit by by accident because i at the time i was a i was an interest rate trader i was a young young trader at goldman sachs in london and the thing that got me the job uh, one of the things at least i suppose was that when i was a student i uh, coded a bot that made a lot of money trading what we now call uh, prediction markets on intrade.com intrade.com may be a platform that some of you guys remember i, I uh, used i used intrade.com oh, a lot back in the day I, trading prediction markets for like u.s elections and stuff like that it, it had good oh, liquidity yeah. but then like um i think it got shut down like four or five years ago it was awesome. i was yeah i was uh i was an intrade as well i was doing um forgot if I did politics, but definitely did the one uh, you could bet. Wasn't it that where you could bet on whether or not there would be uh, like a dirty bomb detonated in a major city? Yeah. Yeah. There was so, a lot. The biggest contracts yeah. were uh, politics and whether the S&P was going to be, or the Dow Jones, I think, was going to be up or down. Those were the, the most traded contracts. And uh, and yeah, I, I was like a 19-year-old 19 year old student and... I had a, an internship at Google where they worked on prediction markets, and I thought, holy shit, maybe I can do something like that in the in the real world. And um, and I did. We made quite a bit of money, uh, especially for a 19 year old student. And so that's what got me, you know, other jobs and 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 especially as a as a trader. And because I was a student and I really liked to party, it was all automated, all automated because I, I wanted to have uh, time to myself. And surprisingly. When I I told my my like my manager at Goldman Sachs because I just wanted to that to be out in the open that I was doing that automatically on the side, they went to fuck is in trade. Yeah, sure, fine. They had, they had, they had no idea. So I thought, well, I'm not gonna ask twice. <laughs> I got that uh, implicit approval, so I kept doing that. But in trade went the way, it went the way of 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 crypto in a way because. You could trade also gold uh, up-down contracts, gold digitals, I think, and a few things. And so the CFTC stepped in at some point and said, well, you can't offer the product to Americans. Because crypto wasn't the first Wild West. Uh, in trade, anyone could, could could trade on that, even Americans. And, and I mean, really, you were trading what was obviously 
derivatives on the price of commodities and other things, even the Dow Jones. And so on that basis, um, you know, those things were under the purview of the CFTC. So the CFTC actually wasn't, you know, wasn't so nasty there. They just said, you have to stop offering to Americans. I don't think they levied any sort of big fine. It's just actually we, we found that this is not, not okay for the US, so, so please, please stop offering, which they did. The problem was that 80% of the business was, was Americans. And so in trade around 2012, I think, started um, losing steam. Some others tried to replace it, but it never really took off. And in the end, something happened that also uh, prefigured what like some of the events in crypto. The founder of Intrade died climbing the Everest. Or so we think. And yeah. then it's quite <laughs> old. Uh, a little bit like, a, what's his name? Gerald Cotton from uh, Quadriga CX. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah the, he, he died in India, right? The, yeah, yeah. Uh, while, while, his, uh, while his dog is died. sitting on uh, millions yeah. of dollars. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that happened within trade. Um, and I, I was very lucky to get all of my money out. Also in, 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 in a dynamic that that helped with, with crypto, you know, they tried to get everyone to, uh, everyone who had big balances on Intrade to to contribute to the losses, to do socialized losses, mm-hmm. essentially. And I said, well, by law, I'm, I'm entitled to my money just as everyone else. And so the day that you open up withdrawals, I'm going to ask for the entire withdrawal. And if any of the suckers are willing to, uh, to contribute to socialized losses, that's good for them, but I'm not going to do it unless you want to have a conversation around equity or things like that. But they did not. They did not. So I had I had put in my withdrawal really early, and I and I thought it was going to be you know first in first out. And yeah, I got all my money, which was a, a good outcome in the end. But then I ended up not having that passive stream of, stream of income that I really enjoyed. And so what happened is that my my flatmate at the time, uh, who was a quant at Goldman, he told me, hey, you you should look into that Bitcoin thing. It, it's pretty new. Uh, and with all your automated market making, maybe there's something to do there. So that's that's one of the many links between Intrade and crypto. In fact, a lot of the people in in Intrade are now in crypto. Uh, I don't. There's a Ron guy. I think he went to Augur or something like that. I, I don't remember his, his exact name. Uh-huh. Uh, and a lot of the investors in Intrade were actually quite prominent. It was uh, Drucken Miller and a bunch of others. And so that was to me, Intrade.com was uh, like a testing ground. For, uh, for what happened to crypto. But anyway, then I, I plugged the algorithms into into Bitcoin and that's that's when it started. That's when B2C2 really started. I see. So yeah, so it's funny you bring up Augur because um, I, I was one of the original users of Augur and, and I thought that, <laughs> Uh, I, I thought it was like a fantastic idea at the time, like utilizing the Ethereum blockchain have like a peer-to-peer market for prediction markets. But I'd say it's probably one of the the bigger failures. I'd say in in like the whole. I think it came out like 2000, 2016, like the, the previous bull cycle when like um, ICOs were booming and there was like limited development on Ethereum, but there were some like legitimate products in their infancy. And I I felt Augur was, you know, like conceptually a fantastic idea. Do you have a take as to why like it it basically failed in like capturing any market share? I mean, in my eyes, it like blockchain technology, especially Ethereum is built for products like Augur, but maybe it was like too early to the market. I agree with you, first of all, that it's a real shame. And secondly, yeah, it it was too early. I remember meeting the, I don't remember his name, you know, the other guy in London 2015 was already working on it. Yeah, Joey, yeah, Joey, yeah, very quick. Yeah. Um, and it was simply too early because I, I don't think there was a, a critical mass yes, of people who have Ethereum and you are, you know, comfortable using 
their wallet to to participate in something like like Augur. Uh, that was before MetaMask and a lot, a lot of mm -hmm. that stuff. Yeah. So a big, uh, a big problem of, of user interface, I think. Also, perhaps the desire of the general population to to, gam to gamble on a variety of things seems to ebb and flow. And mm -hmm. maybe they, they were not uh, on the crest of the wave there. But it, it gets you, I mean, it makes you wonder. I mean, I guess it still works. It's still out there. Yeah. Um, why why is it not taking off now? Maybe there's actually a design problem. I, I, I have to admit, I I looked at the website a couple of times. I've never actually used it. If you ask Paul Stortz, he said, uh, I remember I asked him about the auger a long time ago. He said they uh, they tried to steal his design, uh, but they made modifications that only made it worse. So um, mm -hmm. we'll we'll see if Bitcoin Hive Mind ever comes out. <laughs> we'll be able to see how true that is. That statement. Yeah, it's pretty interesting because um, Augur initially was, uh, I'd say, like the, the first use case for Chainlink and like on chain oracles because you you set prediction markets. You need some oracle feed to confirm, you know, what what is the outcome of a certain prediction market because it's it's not based on. Like um, it's 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 not based on like consensus or popular vote. It's based on like a legit uh, a legit real world outcome. So then, like I was actually pretty bullish at the time for both projects because it it, it made sense, right? You set up these prediction markets, and then you have an oracle feed to, like saying like uh, for example, if if you have a prediction market for the S and P price, you get like an oracle feed that spits out the S and P price, and then you can settle the market instantly, and like the the peer to peer traders can get their funds instantly. So it it seemed like at least in my eyes, a reasonable design for, for a market. But yeah, like I, in, in my opinion, the biggest issue, I, I guess now, but like in the past was there's like very little liquidity. It's like not popularized. And if, if there's no liquidity in these markets, like it's a, sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? If there's no liquidity, no one's going to use it. And if if no one uses it, there's there's no liquidity. So it, it didn't have that initial push, that initial user base that that provided like a, a heavy layer of liquidity for more and more users to onboard. Could it be that the economic design also was a bit uh, flawed? Because I seem to remember now that, so intrade.com had a really good design where you had an order book and anyone could submit orders. And then Augur, I think, was using some concept uh, that's sometimes called Paris Mutuel, I think, where it's a little bit like a Uniswap type setup yeah. where the more money you put on one side, the more it pushes the price. Mm. But of course, it's kind of, I think when you when you want to do a bet and, you, and you've, you've used Intrade, you, you want to be able to just submit an order, set a price, mm. yeah. Yeah. rather than come to a pool where it's kind of unclear the way yeah. that the, the market moves around. Also, how are you going to be able to exit? I think that's quite a complex setup. I'm sure intellectually it's, it's fascinating, but, but from from yeah. a market maker, it's uh you you wanna you want Betfair. They had trade fair as well, right? Yeah. You wanna sit there and you wanna market make at uh yeah, like you want you wanna choose your own prices, your own odds and market maker. Yeah, it's it, it was basically like the difference right now in like a central limit order book, um, where you can put limit orders versus like the the automated market maker model that like you're gonna swap in the other decentralized exchanges, but basically you're quoted a single price. And the price fluctuates based on like the volume and you know how, how many people are on each side of the bet. So like yeah, if, if you're a market maker and, and you can't put in simple limit orders, it sort of turns you off to the platform entirely. Yeah, and I think that's um, so Uniswap. I I was skeptical at the beginning, and I was I was t totally wrong on that. Um, I thought that a a system like that with a 
a market maker where you know the formula because it's automated and it's public cannot work. But clearly, it's been working for shitcoins. Uh-huh. For shitcoins, it's good because... <laughs> yeah. What's the alternative? The alternative is not having a price. And so even though that's not the best price, uh, for an asset that can you know go up 20x, I guess people weren't didn't mind so much the fact that every little transaction maybe wasn't done on the most efficient terms. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that was quite an interesting innovation on which we built a lot of stuff. Um, uh, you know, we really should be grateful to the to the to the first the guys who first launched the or guys uh, the first automated market makers because that really enabled a lot of projects to to get off the ground. You know, mm-hmm. shitty projects for sure sometimes, but also interesting ones. Um, and that's something that I, I figure we should reuse. Also because, and a, a, a quick segue here, you know, we've obviously entered a, a phase of the of the industry where the authorities in the US are, are really not favorable to what we do. And we need to find ways uh, that we can keep operating while being decentralized enough that they can't come after any single one of us and that we, you know, we don't, we don't, actually control what happens in the background because that that it really exposes us to the long arm of, of Uncle Sam. And so I think that all those, some features of DeFi are going to be quite important in the future. I used to be also kind of skeptical because I thought, oh, it's a money laundering, money laundering cesspool and things like that. I, I've changed my mind on that as well. Um, and I think DeFi is going to be more important now than than ever. Yeah, I think the, the automated market maker model worked really well for sort of newer long tail assets, uh, especially like newer tokens that, I mean, at least at the time, it was difficult and costly to get exchange listings for your tokens. And obviously, if you release a token, you need some form of liquidity for the the token holders and the people that want to acquire tokens. So like the, even though it's like sort of a, a basic model, and a, a lot of the times the the actual liquidity providers are kind of being exploited by the the design of the pool and then the, the traders of the pool. It worked for quite some time for at least some assets. And, and I think today, like I'd say long-term, it's probably not sustainable for, for larger cap assets. It, it makes sense for assets that are sort of supposed to be on peg or one-to-one. So if you have like a concentrated pool of like say USDC, USDT, like a Uniswap pool makes sense. But but if you have like a, like a Bitcoin, Ethereum, where both assets fluctuate i don't think the automated market maker model makes sense compared to like a traditional order book yeah so so moving on i wanted to ask um like before your time at uh, btc2 or i guess in comparison to your time at btc2 you worked at goldman um were there any like noticeable uh differences you noticed immediately um within the crypto in- industry versus the traditional finance industry well first of all my uh, my colleagues at goldman were were a lot of them were quite you know, rather favorable to, to crypto. They, they could see the benefits. They could see the intellectual aspect, the, the innovation of, of bridging hashing functions and cryptography with a sort of economic virtual circle to support the security of a decentralized network. So I was, um, I mean, in fact, the, the smartest guy I worked with thought it was kind of, kind of, kind of cool. That I left my job to do that, but of course there were there were big differences between between crypto and uh, and traditional markets. But actually, I don't think that the traditional markets were necessarily much smarter. I think that everything that was interesting in tra- in TradFi was reasonably quickly adopted in crypto, 
And there's also a lot of stuff that's useless in TradFi that we did not adopt, and that's a good thing. I think you have to realize that there's a there's a path dependency to the evolution of a market. So depending on, on the early beginnings, there's only certain outcomes that are achievable. And, you know, because of sometimes, you know, network effects make it so that a certain institution has very strong staying power. And even though it's not efficient, you can't really uh, move away from that, from different types of setup. And so in the end, the path that we followed in crypto, I think was was quite good. And I'll make a few parallels. First of all, uh, things that are that, that were quickly adopted in crypto, like in TradFi, uh, and you see the same evolution with Robinhood, right? So there's a there's like an iron law of trading, which is that how an asset trades on what venues is almost entirely predicated on the sophistication of the of the traders on the other side. So when you have the the most sophisticated traders, you know the high frequency trading firms the quantitative trading firms that have an ability to predict short-term price movements, then the market makers don't want to face those guys. They don't want to be on the other side of those guys because they know that they're going to lose. And so essentially, those guys end up going to exchanges, anonymous multilateral platforms, where they just trade you know, everyone against everyone, the sharks with the sharks. And so if you're not one of those very sophisticated traders, if your activity doesn't move the market or is not predictive of market direction, then you ought to go directly to a market maker. And, you know, that's what we call OTC trading, which people usually thought meant, you know, big, big trades, but actually it doesn't. Um, it, it, you know, OTC trading is really about, you know, doing the you know, millions of small trades from typically retail users or, or institutions that don't predict short-term price movements. Maybe they're just like long-term investors. And those guys go directly to the liquidity providers because they just get a better price. They get a better price because when the liquidity provider trades against uh, a less sophisticated player, they know that the market's not going to move. So they're able to give them a much better price. Mm -hmm. And what you find is that over time, there's a, a clearer and clearer and clearer separation between the sharks that all end up on the exchange and the the retail users and and non non toxic tra non toxic traders that end up trading directly with the market makers. This is also what you see. I mentioned Robinhood. Robinhood is exactly that. In the U.S., there's a historically there's been a high propensity uh, for for retail traders to trade on the exchanges directly, but that stopped making sense as that became you know more and more expensive in comparison to the alternative. The alternative being Robinhood and other and other brokers, which started realizing that if they brought those those flows directly to the liquidity providers, such as Citadel, they would get paid for doing that because Citadel had a preference for trading with those rather than on exchange. And uh, as a result, because they would get paid uh, Robinhood, they could offer zero commission trading, et cetera, et cetera. The U.S. market is a bit complicated because the SEC has all sorts of strange rules that, that make the market what it is. But in the end, you have to consider that Robinhood really is in the business of aggregating retail flow and then giving it at the to the liquidity providers to achieve better outcomes for the retail traders. Whatever you think of, of the COVID bubble and, and the, the meme stocks and all that stuff, it is the case that those innovations have significantly reduced the cost of, of investing for, for retail investors. Mm -hmm. And it's a similar story in, in crypto. The, the, the big retail brokers 
of which Robin Hood is one, um, that's what they do. They also go directly to the market makers. They tend to be some of the biggest clients of the market makers. And you start seeing exchanges become more and more toxic in terms of the flow there because of that continuous separation between soft flow, as we call it, and toxic flow. Mm -hmm. So that's one of the big commonalities between crypto and, and Tratify. In fact, at B2C2, that's one of the first things that we did as early as 2017. We went to Japan because we knew that Japan had a very big contingent of foreign exchange retail traders mm -hmm. who we thought were going to be perfect um, uh, in the context of crypto. I mean, they, they were going to want to trade crypto. And the big retail brokers already existed in Japan, GMO, Irose, SBI. And so those guys were, were going to want to trade directly with, with liquidity providers. So that's one commonality. Now, differences that you have is to this day in crypto, we don't have uh, central clearing. But we do have a lot of, of credit extension. So central clearing, meaning that instead of facing the exchange, facing Binance or Bitstamp directly, you, you trade on Bitstamp and Binance, but then once a day, your trades go to the clearinghouse, uh -huh. your LCH, DTCC, there's a handful. And that's where your trades end up being settled. It never worked for crypto because when you, and there's a path dependency there. When you think about it, when you have a clearing house, you don't have any settlement risk in the sense that you can't send your money and not get the counter value back. You can't send your dollars and not get mm -hmm. your Bitcoin back because that happens atomically at the clearing house. However, you do have a bit of credit risk because between the time that you trade and the time that stuff settles, how do you make sure that you're still good for the trade? You know, if you buy... Mm -hmm buy Ethereum at 2000 and then it goes down to 1500, why would you settle that trade? And in traditional finance, that's sold by everyone leaving a bit of collateral at the clearinghouse mm -hmm. so that if you don't pay, they just liquidate you. But in crypto, you couldn't do that because crypto is, is uh, from its early days, has always been a retail market. Mm -hmm. And if you go back to the days of Mongox or MTGOX, it wasn't possible for, for Mongox to say, hey, Guys, you're, we're going to just settle in two days. That's not crazy. When you, on Mongox, when you sold your Bitcoins and you got your euros, you wanted to get your euros out of the system immediately. Mm -hmm. like, it, like, like on eBay, you know, on eBay, when, when you sell something, I mean, you get, you get your money and that's it. And so if you trade your magic cards on empty Gox, then... <laughs> Some sort of settlement delay that doesn't make any sense. Yeah, you're, you're being you're being very generous. I was going to say it's because you need your heroin right now. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like <laughs> people are going to do whatever they want to do with their body and 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 whatever barriers you you erect, uh, they're going to find a way around them. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, on on, on Mongox, the the exchange had to enforce that everything was pre-funded, and that's the only way mm -hmm. to take care both of the settlement risk and the, the credit risk in between the trading and the settlement. And so that's mm -hmm. how we've evolved in crypto. Still to this day, essentially everything is pre-funded, except the platforms themselves provide leverage, uh, which is quite important because that makes the, that, that, make, that gives the, the, the exchanges and the liquidity providers a very specific uh, position in the system where, because they're the ones offering the leverage. So it's at the same time pre-funded in the sense that Every time that you buy yourself something, you're able to take your money out immediately. But at the same time, you're, you're offered leverage 
whether it's like cash leverage in the sense that it's leveraged to trade the actual physical crypto or it's perpetual swaps or things like that, mm -hmm. the platforms themselves provide a lot of leverage. That's a big difference between um, between traditional finance and crypto, because in crypt in traditional finance, the, the the settlement system and the provision of leverage are different. Uh -huh. I actually think that it's a bit more efficient in crypto. However, it gives rise to a, a, a sort of conflict of interest in a way that 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 has revealed, I mean, that kind of crystallized a few times in a, in a very dramatic fashion. In fact, what, in one of those cases, I was a party to the to the to the problem, um, which is that the platform, when it when it's the one providing the leverage, then if a client blows up, it's the platform that's left holding the bag. Mm -hmm. And the platform, most exchanges are supposed to be neutral intermediaries where they just match buyers and sellers. But when they provide leverage, they're not neutral intermediaries anymore. Because if one of the clans fail, blows up on the on, on margin, then they're the ones left holding the bag. And that also goes back to the question of it's similar to when plat uh, exchanges have their own market making teams. It's mm -hmm. also kind of similar idea. Uh, you're trading against the clients. It's, sometimes it's disclosed, sometimes it's not, but at the same time, it means that the more money your clients make, the more money you lose and vice versa. I mean, it can mm -hmm. be done the right way, but I think it's it's always, I mean, it can be a little bit murky. Um, and so those are some couple big differences between yeah. TradFi and crypto. And I'm going to stop there because I've been rambling for, for a long time. <laughs> No, it's all right. Uh, I was I was gonna ask, like, from the institutional side of things, and like, uh, I know you have a background in, in traditional finance. How do you see like the current state of the markets in terms of like are are there big HFT funds that like let's say in the past like six months to a year have moved to putting in volume in the crypto markets, or are like the the instruments in crypto a bit too primitive now for like the the big funds, you know, like the bigger organizations to to, to really dive in and like. It's mostly retail. Like, how do you see that? Well, no, for for crypto is one of the most efficient markets in the world, in my opinion, in terms of trading. Um, in fact, most of the frictions don't come from the trading side; they come from the settlement side. The fact that you know several banks in the US have blown up who were banking crypto companies, and so when there's a when there are price discrepancies, when there are inefficiencies in crypto, it's typically because of something unrelated to the trading itself mm -hmm. it's always related to the pipes or most of them related to the pipes related to uh to friction from the banking system from regulators etc etc when when you don't have those frictions the market is, is super efficient in fact i think if you want the best example of that it's when bitmex's perpetual swap when it when it became popular they invented it a long time ago i think 2014 or 15 in fact one of my big regrets in life is Arthur Hayes asked me in yeah, 2014 or 15 to, to make markets uh, on BitMEX against, against equity in BitMEX. And I, I said, I'm sorry, I'm very busy. <laughs> that was a <laughs> bad mistake, very bad mistake. Well, I mean, we ended, we ended up doing it, but we said, ah, we don't need incentives. We're just going to make it because we make money. That's fine. Mm -hmm. Pretty stupid of me. And so, but that product took a, took a couple of years to take up. But when it did, it became so incredibly efficient. I think it... It blew everyone's mind that uh, BitMEX swap was always trading one tick wide, you know, like 50 cents wide uh -huh. uh, in enormous size. And that's because it was designed in the most efficient way possible. You can have a ton of leverage, 
it didn't rely on any banking pipes. Mm -hmm. You just deposited Bitcoins and that was your collateral. The mechanism for bringing it back in line was also reasonably good. And the volumes became so big that all the big HFT market makers came to trade on that platform. Tower Research, Jump Trading, uh, as I understand, even XTX, all those big TradFi market makers came to trade the BitMEX swap. And you got that incredible liquidity there, which just goes to show that the Bitcoin market, even though no one really knows what the undervalue of a Bitcoin is, I mean, who do, is it rainbow chart? Is it cost of mining? Who knows? But just the flows, the buying, the selling is enough to give you an extremely tight market mm -hmm. uh, with really big size. If you do that, and you don't need any regulation, any banking, any whatever to get there. So it shows you that the sort of uh, the natural state of a market left to its own like, sort of competitive devices is actually quite efficient. Yeah. It's actually quite efficient. The competitive pressure to offer better prices is, is very strong. And as a result of that, I mean, we all know now that all the big HFTs are in crypto. Uh, you know, the ones I mentioned, Tower Research, also mm -hmm. Hudson River. They're all in crypto because there's there's money to be made. Um, so on the one side, you have a less sophisticated, like a non-institutional user base. I mean, it, it, it's you, it's me, it's, it's just normal individuals. Yeah, just retail, like the large yeah, retail, retail base. And they're, faced, they're facing um, very sophisticated market makers who, due to competitive pressures, give them extremely good prices. And all of that, when you consider who's really making the money there, it's the exchanges. Mm -hmm. The exchanges themselves are making the money. And why? Maybe because they operate some of the most difficult functions, the KYC, the banking, the dealing with regulators, the yeah. corporate structures, offshore and onshore. They also That's have to handle really, like custody of funds, like user deposits, yeah, figure really, out. Yeah. yeah. And so they're really the ones doing the heavy lifting. Uh, I mean, electronic market making is... Uh, it's hard, uh, but at the end of the day, uh, anyone with, with an idea uh, can come up with, with a better algorithm in their garage, I mean, more or less. Now you have obviously bars to entry, but historically it was like that. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, the exchange are capturing the, the bulk of the of the profit. It's no, it's no wonder that um, people only talk about, you know, Binance, Coinbase and others in terms of the big players in, in our industry. And you very seldom hear of market makers and in fact, the only reason that you would you kind of hear about the winter mute or a uh, a jump is because they have very big venture arms. Mm -hmm. They invest in projects, yeah, and so they're they're kind of part of the ecosystem like that. But if they did not, I don't think that most people would have would have heard of of those names. Uh huh. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, so, so moving on, uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about your new project, uh, PVO One, which is uh. Uh, a blockchain debt capital market. Uh, you want to talk a little bit about uh, eventually what it's going to do and what you're looking to accomplish? Yeah, yeah. It's one of the things that's missing in the crypto market that exists in TradFi that we really have to to replicate is the fact that we don't we don't have bonds in crypto. Hmm. We have equity tokens, the ICO tokens, but we don't have bonds. And so the ICO tokens represent or or the governance, whatever you want to call them, they represent the ownership of the of the an app or a company. But then on the debt side, we don't have anything that's good. And I think there is a natural skepticism in crypto when it comes to debt, because in a way, crypto was also um, a, a more philosophical movement away from the concept of debt 
in the sense of fractional reserve banking, which is, is in a sense, you know, banking based on debt, uh, mm -hmm. <clears throat> the subprime crisis, the bailouts of banks who had too much debt. But I think that not, not all debt is bad. And when you, when you, um, there, there's a saying in French, which is that, you know, when you, when you chase the, the devil out the front door, it comes back through the back door. And the, the debt in crypto has always existed, even if we didn't call it that. But when you offer 50x leverage, what you're offering really is collateralized debt, uh, debt collateralized by whatever you're purchasing. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, and we know that leverage in crypto is, has been one of the defining features of the market. So debt is always going to exist, even if philosophically we don't really like it. And I myself always wanted to buy my house mortgage-free and all that stuff. I, I don't really like debt myself. I think that's a great way to lose a fortune is, is by, you know, adding leverage on top of your existing fortune and getting stopped out. So even though we don't like that, we got to have that. That's just what it is. And in fact, the, the safer the business model, the more debt should be in the system, just economically. Mm -hmm. um, because you look at you look at the pharmaceutical company, they don't have debt because uh, like a pharma startup, it's, it's like a coin flip if they're going to be successful. Yeah. And so, you know, a debt investor don't doesn't want to bet on a coin flip. So pharma companies don't have, don't have they only have equity. Uh, at least the not the, the big ones do, of course, have debt, but the small ones don't. Um, but when you look at an industrial company, they have a ton of debt because it's very easy to predict how much money they're going to make. You know, okay, yeah. well, you know, you put iron ore in and you get steel out. How complicated can it be? You can lever that up a lot. And if and if it fails anyway. You've got assets, you've got tangible mm -hmm. assets that you can take. So in crypto, a lot of business models are actually reasonably safe. So we want to have a lot of debt. Um, now, where that's failed is at the junction of people thinking that a given business model is safe or actually it's really not safe. <laughs> so three arrows. Three arrows were supposed to be those geniuses that always made money. Mm -hmm. And in fact, the way they made money in TradFi, because they were... They were known in TradFi, uh, was <laughs> arbitraging, arbitraging between different banks yeah. on, on some emerging market FX products. And so a very safe business that they also levered up a ton because the banks gave them a lot of leverage to do those little arbitrage. But in crypto, they started venturing into you know, less, less risk-free stuff, uh, especially the the big uh, the big GBTC premium trade. So you know, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. The GBTC ARB. The, yeah, the trade it, it, the trade that has killed has killed many before them and will kill many after yeah. them. It's so like a, it's a graveyard. It ki it killed me as well. I, I <laughs> I'm a, sorry. Yeah, I did twenty percent discount and I thought I was a genius for doing that and it's like a forty five percent discount now. Uh, I should have been more patient. Um, yeah, the widowmaker there uh, in a, in every in ten seconds. So GBTC is that sort of pseudo ETF that tracks the price of Bitcoin and you can. You can take some Bitcoin there and receive shares in return, but then you can only sell the share six months later. Yeah. Um, and so people would take Bitcoin, bring it to the, the ETS sponsor, Grayscale, and then they would get shares. They would wait six months and then sell them. And the thing was trading at a huge premium because it was essentially the only like tax-free IRA uh, uh, compliant yeah. way mm. to buy Bitcoin. It, but then it, it also... Yeah. I was going to say it also allowed for like a lot of people that don't know how to handle Bitcoin, like don't understand self-custody to mm -hmm. invest yeah. in a Bitcoin 
uh, and, product and, through their IRA, through their brokerage or whatever, and have exposure to Bitcoin. So yeah, so, so for a while, there mm -hmm. was a lot of demand for it because people wanted exposure to Bitcoin, but they didn't know how to hold physical Bitcoin. So, so they, they put IRA money into it or brokerage money into it, and it caused a huge premium, which has since yeah. evaporated. Yeah, and uh, also, also uh, there's a ton of investors out there who are only allowed to invest in certain classes of things. They can't just like bo go buy BTC. Yeah. So... Yeah, makes sense. The premium existed for a long time and, and Three Arrows started making it. But then th there was no, I mean, no, no real reason there should always be a premium. And at some point, uh, people did that trade too much and the premium turned into a discount, leaving Three Arrows and others with massive losses. And that levered that strategy so much that there was a, there was a $1 billion bag, essentially, a $1 billion bag that was... Uh, left in the hands of everyone who had lent money to Three Arrows. And that was quite an ecosystem. Genesis, biggest lender to Three Arrows, the likes of Celsius mm -hmm. also. And when you compounded that with the failure of Luna, which also really hurt the treasuries of many, of many crypto firms, then we entered a proper, a proper credit crunch. A proper credit crunch because if Three Arrows, maybe the... The, the poster child of, of sophisticated crypto trading could go under in such a dramatic fashion then, then no one is safe in a way. And the problem that PVO1 is trying to solve is that the fact that Three Arrows and others had borrowed so much and who had lent to Three Arrows, there was no transparency around that question. So we didn't know how much Three Arrows had borrowed. In fact, some people who lent $100 million to Three Arrows woke up to realize that 10 other players had done that. Mm -hmm. And that Three Arrows were not borrowing you know, $1 or $200 million, but, uh, but billions. Uh -huh. and, they, and also... Uh, and they had posted that same collateral multiple times. Yeah, Is that they, true? They were, they were I mean, I, I, I think at least they were recycling collateral, right? So like they, mm -hmm. they're essentially mm -hmm. leveraging their leverage like repeatedly. Yeah. <laughs> And, and there's two ways. There's two ways to provide collateral. Either you send the collateral, in which case it, you can't really send it twice. I mean, it, it's Bitcoin. Yeah. It, at least as <laughs> big as that. You know, you yeah. can only send your Bitcoin once. No double spend. Um, but the other way is when the asset cannot easily be moved, you sign a piece of paper saying, "Hey, I keep this aside for you." Yeah. Uh, you're pledging it. It's called a lien. I mean, there's different ways to call that. But I mean, typically you're supposed to put in the document that you you only pledge it once. It's possible either people overlooked that and that wasn't present in the documents or that they simply lied. That's also possible. In which I, case, I, I've, I've seen some of the documents from Trios Capitals and it was basically like, we have $4 billion signed Kyle Davies. And then people accepted that as collateral, like a piece of paper that said that. <laughs> yeah. I hope that the, the GBTC shares were at least not pledged more than once. I, I mean, Genesis is famously the bag holder for those, and it's not really kind of a law to, to sell it easily, or at least, I mean, there's a massive discount now, so they're, they're facing a massive loss. I mean, that's why they're, they're going bankrupt. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, they are bankrupt, I think, uh, at least one of their entities, supposedly. And so, you know, no, not only did we not know how much debt three, three hours had, but also who owned it. You know, we, we suspected... A Genesis, you could suspect some FTXs, but really for six months between, let's say, like May 2022 to November, the failure of FTX, everyone was wondering where the, the skeletons, in, in which closets the skeletons were. And the reason that we don't have that transparency is because we don't use a very simple concept 
which is a concept of a bond, a debt security, which is the same thing as an equity token, as an ICO token, except in, it represents debt. Mm-hmm. Um, and that stuff works really well in TradFi, and we, we had to have it. I think one of the reasons we don't have it is because we started with the stuff that's the juicier, that moves moves around the most, that, that pumps the most, and that's naturally going to be equity, because of equity representing a residual claim on the value of, of, of some company or other. I mean, obviously, it's more exciting to trade stocks than to trade bonds. But now, we really need those bonds. You really need those bonds. And also, that could be a, a catalyst for another sort of bull run or excitement around crypto because you know people are have grown sick of trading ICO tokens and they've mm-hmm. grown sick of trading uh altcoins uh-huh. or at least you know alt season is not is not live every day right yeah. I mean, it comes and goes and so to have bonds now i think would be interesting it would solve other issues or contribute to make to mitigating some issues at least uh-huh. um I mean, you, I, I'm sure some of us here, we own some, uh, you know, we, we have some balances on either FTX, Genesis, others that went bankrupt. Mm-hmm. And if you want to, or even Mongox, I mean, I'm still waiting. I'm going to get my money soon. I I, I think. I, Andreas, <laughs> you as well, probably. No, 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 no. Okay. <laughs> that was no FTX. The signs were there. You were just, uh, I know what happened because the, there was so much money to be made from Arbing. You probably just wouldn't let it go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, but it, it, it I was at the door months before you got erected. Good on you, good on you. I, I at the time was the number two biggest market maker on a <laughs> volume player on on Mongox. So I thought who I was to, number one? I don't know because I just the way I know by the way is because uh, a lot of my Komarski. I I don't know, but the, their database was leaked, mm. and my user ID was at the top there. But it, it's some <laughs> just a UUID, you know. It's just a UUID, like my API key or something uh-huh. similar. It's like a bunch mm. of numbers, right? Yeah, just a bunch of numbers. And so I don't know who was number one. I I, I don't know. I, I wish I did. Uh, it could have been Mike Romansky that that that. <laughs> but so I, you know, I felt I had to be on the platform. I had to maintain balances there. And so the problem with those stock balances is that in order to monetize them and to get out, it's a convoluted process. I mean, if uh-huh. you if you have millions of dollars of it, you're gonna find someone to buy it from you. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's what uh, Fortress and 507 Capital did with Mongox. But then again, they came in a long time later. It didn't come in immediately when when the when the thing went belly up. Um, so even if you even if you have five million dollars on Mongox, um, you could you can sell your claim or you could until recently, I guess, I mean, because it's resolving now uh, to Fortress for some percentage of its value. But if you had like ten thousand dollars. Forget about it. I think maybe Fortress managed to automate the setup a little bit, but you know, there's a threshold under which you're kind of shit out of luck. Uh-huh. Um, and <clears throat> same thing with FTX and everyone. Uh, there's kind of a market. Funny enough, as you know, uh, what's it called? OPNX. Like uh, <laughs> three old guys are looking to create. We're actually we're actually having Leslie from OPNX on like in in a week or so to talk about uh yeah uh, that'll be interesting for sure <laughs> that's going to be a very interesting conversation so in in those contexts you know there is a market but it, it's not really liquid you need to sign a lot of paperwork mm-hmm. um the buyers also need to be sure that they're actually buying the thing because you know someone comes to you with a, an ftx wallet how do you trust that if you sign the paperwork from with with them you're actually going to be the ones owning the thing at the end of the day in bankruptcy yeah. So it's not great. 
If instead, when you lend to a company, uh, instead of having some bilateral loan, uh, you have a token that represents the debt and whoever owns the token owns the debt, then it would be much simpler to take the token and sell it to someone just in your C20 token or something like that. That would make that, that, that market, even in bankruptcy of claims on crypto companies, a lot more efficient and people wouldn't have to wait years to get their money back. <clears throat> mm -hmm. So those are some of the, the, the problems that, that PV1 solves. By going to issuers and, insert, and, and issuing debt as tokens and, and then getting investors to buy those tokens and afterwards uh, trying to maintain a secondary market in those debt tokens, uh -huh. then we should make uh, the way debt works in crypto a lot more transparent and efficient. I see, I see. So um, yeah, I wanted to talk about like the the specifics of the the platforms. So it's going to be on chain, mm. right? You're going to be using, let's say, Ethereum blockchain for the transaction of these tokens. So yeah. how exactly does the debt tokens work? Like, for example, if there's like an institution or a group that like has a decent amount of debt, are you going to issue, say, ERC-20 tokens where like one token equals $1 of debt? Or are they going to be like individual tokens per person with like varying, almost like NFTs, I guess, in a way? But, but yeah. um, who, hmm. like which one would you use to represent debt on the platform? It's a good question because... Um, a lot of players are, are, are doing that and, and some of them are doing well in like Ondo and others. They're doing that with treasuries, which we also want to do, but that's not our, our core focus. Our core focus is we want actual companies mm -hmm. to issue the debt, not just US government debt. Yeah. Um, but so what they're doing is that you invest in a pool or it's kind of same idea with Maple. You, instead of buying something directly, you invest in a pool and then someone else is responsible for putting, so buying assets into the pool. And when it's US government, that's fine because one treasury bond or another, do you really care? Mm -hmm. Maybe you care a little bit, but it's not such a big deal. Whereas if there's a pool in which you can invest and the pool buys debt from B2C2 and Binance and some known and OP, OPXN, then <laughs> I'm not sure that everyone wants equal exposure to those three names. Yeah. Uh, you know, maybe you trust OPXN, but you don't trust B2C2. Um, and so when you have credit sensitive, credit sensitive instruments like corporate debt, then you want to make your own decision. So the concept of a pool doesn't really work. Mm -hmm. So instead, the token itself represents one bond. Mm -hmm. And think of it, I mean, we got to start with ERC-20 because that's the most accepted standard. Mm -hmm. So think of it as an ERC-20 token. Every bond is an ERC-20. Um, you know, let's say it's, it's $10 million. So there's $10 million of of balance uh -huh. it's infinitely divisible so it doesn't really matter yeah. uh, and then what's quite important is beyond the fact that it's so one to one compared to an actual like it's an actual bond uh, with an actual issuer it's not a pool um is that <clears throat> the thing is transferable and that's key mm -hmm. the thing is transferable if it's not transferable it's not a bond yeah and i think that a player like ondo has made the design choice that it wouldn't be transferable so that it could be accessible to US qualified investors. Mm -hmm. So our stuff, if we make it, I mean, the way we made it very broadly transferable, but then of course, we're not going to be able from the beginning to offer that stuff in the US. Yeah. Because it's, it's a trade-off. Either you're flexible and you don't touch the US or you touch the US, but then you have to be inflexible. But like uh, hypothetically speaking, couldn't someone just acquire these tokens on chain without doing KYC and bypassing the whole like uh, US offering thing? 
potentially you um, you know let's say there, 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 there you end up having some sort of uniswap uh, pool for one mm -hmm. of the tokens and if the tokens in your seed 20 token you know you, you can't stop like you can't put a stop to the transfer function of the yeah. ethereum blockchain you sell it where you want to sell it now whether that constitutes a, a legally valid transfer is another question what does it mean to be legal and that's obviously some of the uh, the secret sauce is that you know uh, how can you have I mean, given you can't really stop people from transferring the asset, what does it mean? I mean, some, some transfers clearly are not valid in some sense, yeah. uh, either economic mm. or, or legal or, or, some, or compliance or something like that. How do we make those two things work together? But when you consider what an actual bond is, a bond, you can also send it to whoever you want. Mm -hmm. So bonds historically and actually still to this day are just a piece of paper. And who <laughs> holds the paper? Owns the bond. Yeah, it's it's very archaic. It's uh, <laughs> it's like also the premise of the, it's also the premise of I believe uh, uh, Trading Places, a few other movies. <laughs> yeah, Die Hard. They're they're stealing some some paper bonds. No, sorry, you know? not Trading Places. <laughs> uh, I I had confused. That was Columbus Trading, but Die Hard for sure. It's raining bonds. Uh, a recent Netflix series, Kaleidoscope. Also, same hmm. idea. And so that's what bonds are. And interestingly enough. I mean, in, in an obvious way, bonds are kind of electronic now. I mean, we don't really use paper that much. However, at uh, the way it kind of works in, in, in legal practice is that Euroclear gets some sort of PDF, they print it, they put it in a vault, and that's mm -hmm. the bond. But yeah. They print it. They actually print it. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Uh, Max, I got, a, I got a question. So with a bond, how does the payment work? How uh, is it? Is it? Is it just? Uh, if I have to guess, I'm guessing on the uh, on the ERC twenty contract it keeps track of uh, repayments, and you go and claim it. That's how I would make it. Yeah, that's a very good question. In in TradFi, how does the payment work? When normally you have the the bond, and <clears throat> you know why we call hmm. the interest a coupon? You call mm -hmm. it a coupon because your piece of paper would have like ten different coupons, and uh, yeah. by the time you would tear it off. Go hmm. to a, a specific bank that was responsible for that one bond, and then they would pay you your money. <clears throat> then it, that became it, a it has the date on it. Yeah, there's a date on it. Yeah, you're ah, supposed okay, to. Yeah, yeah. yeah, you can go to the bank with the coupon at, at some date and get paid. Hmm. And and so if someone steals the bonds with the coupons, then you lose the bond. Uh, then it became a bit more electronic. But at the end of the day, when the issuer makes a payment, they make the payment to Euroclear, the the the, the, the actual actual legal owner of the bond. Um, mm. And then you're clear, it has some clients, maybe like call it 30 people own the bond. It sends the money to the 30 clients. And then the 30 clients themselves have sold the bonds to others. They're kind of holding the bonds on their behalf. And then they have to distribute. Kind of like staking as a service, if you wish. You know, like you go to Kraken, you stick your stuff, and then they pay you whatever share you're owed. Mm. Um, and so that's how it works in, in TradFi, which kind of makes it a little bit complicated when you think about it. Because you have to find the ultimate uh, owner, beneficial owner of the bond. And there's also some tax rules. I mean, a lot of mm -hmm. stuff comes into play. Whereas on the blockchain, on the public blockchain, you can just go and, I mean, either airdrop or claim. Yeah. Claim for sure. Yeah. Then, then, then you don't have to pay the, then the issuer doesn't have to pay the gas fees. And yeah. but also, I think it's, I think it's more elegant, but okay, we yeah. don't have to get into the tech. I, I'm, I'm with you. I like claiming more. I like claiming mm -hmm. more. Uh, and in fact, I can yeah, say- I, I think claiming makes a lot more sense. Like it's yeah. a, a more simple solution.
Absolutely. Yeah, and we, we use claiming, we use claiming uh, just because, I mean, it, it's kind of cool to be able to airdrop. People can just like buy and forget a bond. Mm, yeah. But uh -huh. the airdropping is, is very, com is extremely costly, uh, computationally speaking. So, so that's not uh -huh. the best. But I, I kind of like it though, because the problem with gas fees uh, is that when, when you're going to claim something, it's going to cost you five bucks. Whatever mm -hmm. you do is going to cost you five bucks. And our desire, is to make, I mean, fixing some problems with credit in crypto is nice, but the real objective is to make fixed income investment accessible to as many people as possible. Yeah. And so if you've got $1,000, we want you to be able to put it at 5 or 10% in some sort of fixed income product. Um, but then, you know, that means at the end of the year, you're only going to have, call it $50. If you pay 10% of that just in gas to claim, that's that's just not the best outcome. But I guess that's one of the constraints that we face. And one reason that we're very open to after after implementing on Ethereum, working with other blockchains, which might have better fees. And yeah, like I, I was I was gonna ask, have you considered looking at like a few Ethereum rollups that are or maybe even developing your own rollup for this specific purpose where you can consolidate all the transactions on one rollup and pay like a fraction of the fees? And then, mm -hmm. like, uh, eventually, you get more like lower end retail users that you can't really afford to make Ethereum transactions regularly be able to use this roll up for, for their needs. Yeah. So, I don't think we're smart enough to do our own roll up <laughs> to be <laughs> perfectly uh, humble and honest. Uh, so, I think others are much, much smarter than that than us. I've roll ups. And so, yes, you know, I don't know yet. Which uh -huh. which blockchain is going to be number two? At the moment, the product is is like works on the in terms of tech on on the Ethereum blockchain, um, but whether it's going to be you know Polygon or or or, or Avalanche or Polkadot, that I don't know yet. Mm -hmm. uh, but my objective is to be essentially agnostic. I think it it's very negative in crypto how people are are trying to to, to bring other projects down. Um, yeah, I, think I agree. It's very tribalistic right now. Yeah, you want to go pay. where the users want to go. Yeah. And if the users want to go with Avalanche, it's going to be Avalanche. If they want to go with, with something else, it's going to be something else. I'm, I think it's really silly to say, oh, on the technological side, you made those design mistakes. And so your blockchain is stupid. I don't know, man. They're just design decisions. They're not necessarily mm. mistakes. Max, I got a, uh, I got a second question. So yeah. um, when I uh, want to issue a bond, the side shift, the side shift bond, yeah. where I, I, I need some cash uh, and I'll pay it back over. It's crypto, so I'll pay it back over like four weeks. <laughs> you pay back. The, the timeline is a bit uh, uh, compressed in crypto. No, I'll pay it back over two years. What are my steps? Uh, what do I have to do? Like, what does PVO one vet? Like, what is the whole? I kind of start to finish. So there's a in in that sense, so some of it remains quite traditional. You've got salespeople going to the issuers, and that in TradFi, it's called origination. So there's mm -hmm. teams of people who, who are sort of have a close relationship with the issuers and they know their financials well, uh, even like mm -hmm. private financials that not everyone sees. And they try to, to work with their needs in terms of capital structure to help them match those needs to whatever the investors might, might, might find palatable. So, mm -hmm. you know, it's going to be someone to say, okay, you need, you need money for four weeks. Are you sure it's for four weeks? You know what about what about three months? Like try mm. to find why you you think you need what you need, mm. um, and, or maybe even come up with ideas that you hadn't thought of uh, for ways to issue. Are you? Is there any security? Is there is there is there any asset that you can pledge to uh to support your issuance? Or no? Is it fully unsecured? 
So mm-hmm. those guys work with you. And then at the same time, on the other side, um, there's people who know the investors well. And in a startup, it's the same people, right? I mean, it, at the end of the day, it's the same people. At the beginning, the, the, you know, what you would call credit sales. And then those guys know the investment strategies of the investors, what kind of debts they're interested in, what kind of companies they, they, they like to, to dig into, to do due diligence on. And then what happens is that when we identify some investors that would be interested in your debt, and that's what we call the primary process here, that's at the creation of the debt um, that at the very beginning, then there's like there's price talk, like how much interest, what, what the yield is going to be. And, and whether that works for the issuers and that works for the investors, and that's where there's a market. I mean, the market needs to find the rate that works for, for both sides. And then the things issued. The things issued meaning that the tokens created, investors send USDC into the smart contract that goes to the, to the issuer, and then the investors get the token in return. And then, and then the bond is live. It comes with some paperwork that's, you know, there's just a link on the, on the smart contract to, to some PDFs, right? Um, and, and the bond is life. It, it, it legally it exists. It's valid. If you don't pay back, they, they can go to court and force you to pay, etc. And that's a primary process. And after that, there's the secondary market uh, can emerge, meaning that investors maybe you have a two, two uh, you know you said four weeks, two years, who knows? But um, it's say two years. Maybe the investors don't don't want to hold the bond for more than six months, or they change their mind, and then they can sell it to someone else. Um, but that market is the same as a, a market for tokens. You know, it just there's a token, you don't like it, you sell it, you want to buy it, you buy it, and vice versa. Are, so are you are, sorry? Are you are you setting up your your own markets for that, or are you going to use like the the current on chain protocols to swap the token back and forth? I, I want to do both. I want to do both because I'm I'm a I'm a dealer uh-huh. at heart. I, I like mm-hmm. to make markets, so I would like to make markets in that tokens. Uh, of mm-hmm. course, as you know, for B2C2, it's very easy to make markets in the tokens. Just, mm-hmm. you know, click a couple buttons and then boom, new token. For us, you know, we're a small company. Uh, it's not going to be as easy, but I like to think that I created B2C2 for a reason because I'm, I'm good at making markets. And so I'll find a way. Um, <laughs> but other than that, and maybe this is not the most rational thing for me to do, uh, to do it myself. I also want to obviously use DeFi because in fact, I think it might be like the bigger opportunity might be to use DeFi. And now it's going to be quite interesting because DeFi is not exactly entirely fit for purpose today for bond tokens. When you think about it, when you have a pool that represents uh, two assets, one against the other, then it works well if you get like the the top 20 tokens because they're they're highly identifiable. There's not millions of them. But when you have debt, well, Microsoft maybe has a hundred bonds outstanding, and that but there's only one share, one stock of Microsoft. So is that is DeFi going to lend itself to the potential complexity in terms of instruments? I think technologically speaking, it makes no difference whether you're talking about trading one stock or ten bonds. I mean, it's just a drop-down menu. Yeah. Who cares? Uh, with some autocomplete. Um, a suggester uh, AI or whatever, a recommender AI. Um, so I don't think it makes a big difference, but in the context of ERC20, it's a little bit sad that we have to create a new smart contract for every bond. I'm more interested in the future into those other uh, protocols. Um, is it 1159, 1155? And, and a few others where it's kind of like a folder 
where the smart contract can you can show different tokens under it. So you would imagine one issuer would be one folder, and then you would have all the bonds under it. Uh-huh. That would be more interesting, like a, uh, like but, a multi asset token. Yeah, but but before that, it's it's on Ethereum, though, right? It's just like a different. It's a different standard, standard. for Ethereum yeah. token. Yeah. Yeah, it's on, it's still on Ethereum. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's like it's like uh, uh you know NFTs are seven hundred something. Seven two one, yeah. Well, one one five five, I think. Yeah, yeah. Said, actually, but you know, I think, and that's what that's a mistake that a lot of people in, in crypto make. They want the best technological solution, whereas like the, the the best can be the enemy of the good here. Um, you know, you just want something that's adopted, and if MetaMask doesn't integrate with your thing. Forget about it, man. It's mm-hmm. you're, you're failing. And yeah. so you want to do something that's easy to adopt. And then maybe the market will evolve to, you know, towards smarter, smarter ways of doing things. But that, that's how we're, we're going to start. And the second thing that's not really ready in, in DeFi is that on a bond, you have an interest rate. And it's not like the curve pool with USDT versus USDC. That's stuff always you trade at one. But the bond, even if it's a completely risk-free government bond, or more or less risk-free, uh, children always trade at one because there's a accrual of interest. Yeah, and that makes it not exactly. I think we need to modify a little bit um, the those those apps to deal with that. But if we if we can do that, I think yeah, that's going to be a very good avenue, a very good uh, a very good way for for the stuff to transact. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. Hmm. Uh, so, do you have any timeframes on this? Um, like, do, do you know when the the markets will launch? And are, are you onboarding companies that are looking to to, to sell debt already, or is, hmm. is it mostly going to launch with, say, like U.S. Treasury bonds and like you know, like the the bigger cap stuff? Yeah, there, it's just a two step process. First of all, at the moment, everyone in the in the crypto market is kind of scared of credit exposures. A lot of the stuff hasn't resolved. Even Genesis, you know, their trade their lending entity is, is in bankruptcy, but the trading entity isn't. Yeah. Really? Like it the chips haven't all fallen, the dust hasn't settled. And so I think it's premature to think that we're gonna like crypto companies are gonna issue bonds. Um and maybe Binance could. Uh-huh. But you know, one issuer doesn't make a market. So we're starting with a treasury product in the course of the summer. You know, it, it, okay, it, all right, reasonably soon. A lot of other protocols do that already, and and, and they're great. Um, the difference uh-huh. for us is going to be transferable. So you know, whether you you can transfer U.S. Treasury, like, do you care? Really, it's going to be interesting when it's actual corporate bonds, and uh-huh. for that. So we're using treasuries to prove that the technology works, that it gets some traction in the market, but then. Really, we want to issue corporate debt, and that's going to depend on the appetite uh-huh. of the market. I, I, it's not like a build it and they will come. It's also yeah. people need to be comfortable lending again to the most blue chip uh, crypto companies, and that that's going to depend on on where the you know on the crypto on the current crypto winter. Uh huh. Yeah. yeah. And I, I guess it'll be reflective on on the rates that people are willing to to pay um, in order to 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 acquire this debt, right? Like the, I mean, obviously, the higher rates, the the less trust yeah. they they have in the system overall. So yeah, it's, it's a very interesting market. Exactly. Now, I, I, and what I want, I want blue chip stuff. I don't want convoluted, high yield, weird stuff that yields thirty percent a year. Yeah, I think you know if you're looking at so that yields thirty percent, go do some liquidity mining, go buy some some shit coins, uh, <laughs> you create returns. What we think here is that the ability to put your money to work in a safe way 
I mean, it, it's not like it's a human right, but I mean, everyone should have access to that. Uh -huh. And so in a, in, a, in, a, in an environment when, where rates are zero, you don't, no one cares that you're sitting on USDC and doing nothing with it. But when rates go to three, four, five percent, there's a real opportunity cost there. Yeah. And we know all of us, we know that if you have a lot of money in crypto and you want to take it back, or even if you don't have a lot of it, if you have money in crypto full stop, you want to take it back to the banking system, almost impossible. And so those like you, you could put your money in deposit for four percent now, but just moving it from USDC into actual dollars. Yeah, it's is really tricky. And, and I feel like it's going to get increasingly more difficult as as the the regulations increase. I mean, like the actions of the uh, the, the the federal government in the past year, yeah. like some of it in my eyes is like super ridiculous, like essentially blaming uh, blaming the. The banking crisis on crypto companies when sure. they had absolutely nothing to do with with like the the internal workings of any of these banks and then using crypto as a scapegoat attempting to cut off you know fiat on ramps off ramps um for a lot of exchanges and a lot of individuals yeah i feel like it's going to be more and more difficult to to move even stable coins into fiat and then yeah uh, shame on them shame yeah. on them and uh, uh you know we it, we're not criminals. We're not criminals. You know, we just happen to 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 want to put our money in in stable coins or crypto. Um, yeah, you know, it's not a crime. And, and so the fact that we have uh, more limited access to very basic financial products, I think, really irks me. I'm I'm really mad about that. Yeah, um, me too. And so that's something that we we hope to change, but not by by creating you know something for the gens, uh, but just you know, basic investment products. You know, yeah. U.S. Treasuries, Coinbase debt. Stuff that yields seven percent, yeah, yeah. Uh, yield five, you know that kind of stuff. Yeah, I it want, makes. I want the volume, the big volumes. Yeah, I mean, even like the the smaller end retail user that like wants to get in crypto, but you know, it doesn't want to be up like twenty hours a day, like swapping shit coins, trying trying <laughs> to make it. You know, like they, they can invest in something that where they don't have to keep their their money in like traditional banks, but they can also get the benefits of say like something as simple as a U.S. treasury, you know, like you have U.S. dollars, you get paid to like essentially hold U.S. dollars and you can do it all. And like the whole uh, yeah. blockchain decentralized experience, you, you can, you can use self-custody, right? Like I think that's another big thing. Whereas like, you don't have to trust like a counterparty, especially like the, the banking crisis gets a bit worse and, and more and more like regional banks start defaulting, then, People are going to lose trust in that, but if 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 your assets are guaranteed on chain and then you hold the private keys or you can figure out a self custody solution, then that that reduces the counterparty risk by quite a bit. Yeah, and also, I mean, you should have you shouldn't have one hundred percent of your wealth in shit coins. Uh, you know, maybe, maybe, maybe gamble thirty percent of it, and then eighty percent uh, you should maybe use more, more sensible stuff. Uh, just a bit of diversification, and and also, I think this is important for stable coins to to grow in terms of usability i think that like when you get stable coins your first uh port of call your first um uh reflex shouldn't be to go and sell them for fiat uh -huh. it should be to keep the stable coins yeah and and, and pay your invoices to do, do stuff like that and yeah. so having debt denominated in stable coins also is one way to get there you know because yeah. if you have stable coins liabilities <laughs> Then it makes sense for you to keep stablecoin assets. Like it's yeah. it's only the equilibrium. Yeah, it, it, it makes sense. Yeah, like the the more use cases you put on chain for stablecoins, the the more it makes sense to you know hold stablecoins and and use stablecoins on chain. 
So like the, the more financial products there are that like interact with um, just holding a coin that's worth one dollar, the, the the more it's going to be used for sure. Yeah. So we'll see how it goes, right? Um, yeah. We we have a very good team here. We got some very we're very lucky to have done a, a funding round at, at at the right moment on, the, on on an idea that that got traction. Um, uh-huh. So so now yeah, we're a team of about uh, twelve people now. I think lots of coders, some sales, some legal, etc. Yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to it. Uh, Andreas, do you have any questions? No, the uh, the only thing I was wondering is um, which which currency is the bond issued in, or whatever the the term you would use for that is. Like, can I raise ether or? Yeah. So that the denomination of the bond. Uh, yes, Ooh. that's what I'm. Yeah. Yeah, you can raise ether. No problem. No problem at all. Um, mm-hmm. You have to consider think... now that people are going to ask why you need ether specifically. If you can justify yeah. that, then yeah. if you're a market maker, it's kind of clear why you need ether. Ex- exactly. That was uh, that was really my question because I've been in the I've been in this situation before. I mean, I asked you as well. I was like, "Hey, how do I get like random shit coins if I need it for the business I run?" And you're like, "Well, normally you would just." Uh, if you're an OTC desk, you, you go and borrow. And then it's like, okay, uh, who will lend me a large amount of Litecoin? You're like, uh, <laughs> probably <laughs> no one. So uh, very interesting. Well, what, what would be interesting would be to have um, the ability to, for for the, the, the pools, sorry, for, for the debt to be collateralized with different shit coins mm-hmm. um, or, or coins, not, not necessarily shit coins. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a con- I used to work on that at Goma actually. Tri-party repo. It, it, it's it's a neat it's an assist a neat system where you get cash and what you pledge in return you can you can switch in and out in your collateral you can very easily switch in and out uh-huh. and so that that would be a way to to finance you know whether it's Litecoin whether it's Ethereum whether it's Bitcoin uh-huh. um, so we could we can envision at some point creating something like yeah a tri-party repo facility and really the uh, debt capital markets are quite varied and quite deep. Uh, I want to start with the very basic unsecured bond that pays at maturity, super simple. Um, but then after that, you know, it can branch out into many, many directions. Yeah. What's really important is that, and, and I think this is also, it changes the game a little bit. When it was FTX doing lend or Alameda doing lending, or are they different? <laughs> <laughs> um, doing lending with uh, a Celsius or Genesis, no one ever wanted to share their financials. They were very protective of those. And I think the reason was that you thought, well, really, I'm borrowing from Genesis, but Genesis is a competitor. I don't want them to see my private financials yeah. because they're going to use that against me in some other context. And I understand the, the sentiment, but at the same time, it, you can't have a debt capital market where everyone is guards there, you know, keeps their cards to their chest. And I think that PVO1 being essentially like an advisor, like an investment bank to, to its clients and having like some sort of, depending how, fiduciary duty, it's a different conversation. You know, if you if we were to go to, to an issuer and say, look, we're going to help you issue debt, you can share your financials with us because we're not going to use them in any other context. We're not mm-hmm. your competitor in any way. We just want to help you achieve your uh, capital structure goals. And so that is going to make it easier to create a market at the juncture of debt investors, of which are going to be more and more because all strategies mm-hmm. in crypto stop working. So all the all the big funds in crypto are raising debt funds now. So at the intersection of debt investors and debt issuers, 
And when we have uh, when we have that, and it's not intermediated by people that are really competitors to one another, I think it's going to give us a much more a much healthier ecosystem for that in crypto. Yeah, that that makes sense. So before we let you go today, um, where can the viewers or listeners of this podcast either find you or say like uh, updates on uh, PVO one or you know general stuff like that? Easiest is uh, uh, the PVO one uh, uh, Twitter. So PV01 underscore markets at Twitter. I'm also on Twitter, Max Brunen on Twitter. And you can follow me for sometimes crypto takes, sometimes spicier takes, which <laughs> I like to offer from time to time. Uh -huh. I don't know if that gets me more or less followers, but I don't give a shit. I, I'm going to... I'm going to offer those takes whether the world wants them or not. Yeah, I like to tell it like it is. So you can follow me, Max Bonin, on, on Twitter as uh -huh. well. And then the PV01 Twitter is PV01 uh, dot uh, or, or underscore uh, markets. Okay. Yeah. And we'll, and we'll have links to all of these things in the in the episode. Yeah. Don't worry about it. Yeah, PV01 was taken, uh, which is a shame. Just like B2C2 was taken by a random guy with, with two followers. Uh, <laughs> but I did, I did manage. I didn't manage to buy pvo1.eat. Yeah. Oh, so, uh, you got the ENS. Nice. I, sna I, I snatched it. It was very expensive. Oh, uh, really? I think the, the shorter the name, the more expensive it is. There's some formula. Because uh -huh. uh, yeah. for letters. But, you know, you got to spend money to make money. Okay. <laughs> that is true. That is true. That's uh, I think that's a, that's a good note to leave it at. Yeah, I yeah. think that's all I have for today. I appreciate you coming on, Max. Thank, Thank you, Max. you for having me. And Andreas, I look forward to seeing you soon. That is true. I'll see you soon.